Welcome to Miranda Warnings Roundtable, discussing legal issues and current events. I'm joined on the roundtable by Liz Benjamin and Professor Vin Bonventry. Liz is the Managing Director at Marathon Strategies, a public relations and communications firm, and former host of Capital Tonight, a political and policy show focusing on New York State politics. And Professor Vin Bonventry, Distinguished Professor of Law at Albany Law School and publisher of the New York Court Watcher, devoted to commenting on the U.S. Supreme Court and the New York State Court of Appeals. This week on Miranda Warnings Roundtable, we're going to provide a legislative recap of the New York State legislative session. This has been one of the most successful legislative sessions for the New York State Bar Association in recent history. Several priorities of the New York State Bar Association were passed by both houses of the legislature during the budget session. The New York State Bar Association's uh, proposal regarding the increase in the uh, fees for a side council, 18B, uh, was passed by both houses of the legislature, raising the, the rate for 18B assigned council to $158 per hour from the former 90, the first increase in approximately 20 years. And during this last week, there were a couple of priorities of the New York State Bar Association, uh, one including the repeal of judiciary law, section 470, which makes it now easier for lawyers licensed to practice in New York to actually practice in New York. Uh, section 470 of the judiciary law is, is repealed and that had required a physical office space requirement. We'll talk a little bit about that. And we'll also talk about clean slate. Uh, a clean slate legislation uh, has passed that the New York State Bar Association has been advocating for for, uh, for many years. And there's a couple of others regarding the CPLR and immigration rights that we can talk about. But uh, let me start it off with Liz. Liz, what's your big picture assessment of the legislative uh, session this year? Uh, it was a big stinker. You didn't I'm like sorry. it. You didn't like what? it. I just gave a big buildup of how great it was. I mean, look, no, 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 no. Okay. You, All right. You, you just gave it a big burst David's bubble for crying out. Well, I mean, to be fair, David, David is looking at it through the lens of the State Bar Association. And there were some significant wins for the State Bar Association. The State Bar Association, and it's great for state for bar members and access to justice, particularly when it comes to 18B. But like overall, the budget was a monthly, which cut into their ability to have time to do anything of significance after the fact. Clean slate was modified. I mean, it's still a significant, you know, win. Um, the housing compact, meh, nowhere, didn't get didn't get over the hump. Uh, the assembly now says that they're coming back in a couple of weeks. So clearly they didn't get everything that they wanted. The governor lost on Hector LaSalle, which was a big deal. It feels like a million years ago, but it was yeah. not too terribly long ago. And maybe not of so much importance or interest to, to NISPA members, but she also lost on her NIPA appointee, uh, Justin Driscoll. Yeah. So, you know, she didn't have a great session. Am I going to say that New Yorkers' lives are measurably changed for the better as a result of the work that the legislature and the governor did this year? Not, not entirely sure about that. Wow. Sorry, sorry, David. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but I mean, like, I, 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 I am not trying to belittle the significance of the achievements 
that you were able to realize on behalf of NISPA membership. The, the, the issue related to 470 is big, very big. Um, and of course, like also 18B, well, let's talk about the funding. Mm, that That's a little bit of a, of a wrinkle there. Um, so I think we have some things that we can talk about. Right. Uh, 18B, of course, you know, it increased the rate from 90 to 158. Uh, the New York State Bar Association actually had what is in, it still it remains involved in a lawsuit to on on a couple of issues that need to be addressed with respect to that one is a mechanism for an increase on a year to year basis so that we don't have to keep uh fighting over this uh that's still part of the lawsuit we did ask that the rate be comparable to the federal rate which is 164 so it's not quite exactly where we had hoped it would be and also we believe that it should be the New York State Bar Association, at least, policy is that should be a, a state-funded uh, uh, increase and not a unfunded mandate to the municipalities. Yeah, I mean, look, the the the, and I don't. Again, I don't. I I guess my role for today is skunk at the garden party. So I'll just. Is that only today? Days. What What were you the other days? <laughs> wow. <laughs> It's getting cold in here, man. I don't know. Well, all right. Well, 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 let's oh, hold on. So just from a municipal government standpoint, I mean, another thing that happened that's not so great for municipal governments. Well, I mean, ostensibly it might be is uh, it depends on your political persuasion, I guess. So they they, they also uh, passed legislation that would move um, a number of local elections to coincide with the calendar of presidential and congressional which of course, as we know, is good for Democrats because we have a Democrat-dominated state and you have turnout actually that goes up um, on those elections traditionally on those cycles. And the so-called off cycles are good for Republicans because we have fewer Republicans um, enrolled in New York and then the Republicans manage to retain their toehold at the local level. From a financial standpoint, that actually makes more sense because the right. fewer elections that you have to run would actually be beneficial. But I think that the local governments were not thrilled about that particular development. Vin, what do you think about the legislative session? Any, anything that jumped out at you as particularly significant or uh, something that you, you, fact, you, you thought maybe was a missed opportunity? Yeah, well, I mean, Obviously, the governor is not getting everything that she wants. I mean, even though the Democrats have a super majority in the houses, I mean, uh, you know, the Democrats are split between, you know, the progressives and uh, and the more moderate uh, members of that party. So and she she's obviously a member of the moderate wing, of the Democratic Party. So she's not going to get everything that she wants, because just like with Hector LaSalle, um, her nominee for chief judge, because the progressives oppose many of what she wants, and she's not exactly in favor of much of what the progressive want. But, uh, you know, for example, on bail reform, I mean, you know, a compromise was reached. And uh, although there are some you know, claiming that, oh, my God, you know, what we did with bail reform initially was the best thing ever. I mean, give me a break. You know, I mean, some people are just so damn ideologically blind. I mean, there needed to be refinements. You know, I mean, there are those on both sides that were, you know, claiming the sky is going to fall if they don't get exactly what they want. But, you know, uh, they managed to come up with with a compromise. 
one, th one thing I hope that is done uh, when the uh, legislature apparently comes back for this extended session of this, uh, who knows what, well, the, the, what the they Senate, call it. The Senate has adjourned, right? The assembly is coming back, right? Yeah, it's just the assembly that's coming back? I believe so, yes. Well, that's unfortunate because I don't think that uh, anything yet was done with the uh, with wrongful conviction, the wrongful conviction act, which I think, um, and that, I mean, when Liz says, you know, there are certain things that were done that's good for the bar and good for lawyers. But one of the things that I think that's very good for the state is if we had some legislation on wrongful convictions, because the Court of Appeals has been absolutely abominable on uh, ensuring that people who are wrongfully convicted uh, end up being exonerated, end up having their convictions uh, thrown out. You know, there's, there's that absolutely notorious case of just a few years ago with, of course, now Chief Judge Rowan Wilson uh, in dissent in that case, that's uh, People versus Tiger, in which the Court of Appeals knew that the woman was innocent. But because she had pled guilty, right, to avoid a possible seven-year uh, sentence, because she uh, uh, pled guilty, the Court of Appeals says, well, we can't, you know, undo her conviction. Well, of course they could have undone her conviction on basic due process grounds. But, you know, I mean, they said, well, the statute itself doesn't give us the authority. Well, basic constitutional due process does. I mean, and so the Wrongful Conviction Act apparently is going to provide that wrongful convictions may be overturned, even if there is no DNA evidence, and even if the individual had originally pled guilty. Because as we know, um, people plead guilty all the time for all kinds of reasons, and it's not necessarily uh, because they are guilty. So um, I don't know what's going to happen with that, but I gather if, if the Senate is not coming back, then I guess nothing's going to happen with that uh, with that bill. Well, I think the Assembly is coming back to address some issues that the Senate already addressed, right? And uh, I think it's a little bit of a cleanup. Liz, do you have any, do you have any uh, more insight on what the Assembly is going to pick up uh, when they come back? I think well, within I the think next two weeks. One of these last minute wrinkles was um, a bill that uh, enabled the governor to enter into a casino compact renewal with the Seneca Nation. And there are reports out today, as we're recording this, that that uh, deal also pot potentially includes the siting of a casino in downtown Rochester which I think that the Rochester delegation was like, whoa, whoa, we, we did not negotiate this. We don't know anything about this. And why are you, well, I don't know that we approve of this. And of course, the Del Lago folks are not terribly far away. And so they're not happy about that. So that that uh, passed the Senate, but did not pass the Assembly. Um, I think that the no vote there was um, Senator Cooney, who is uh, of the Rochester delegation. Um, and that's one big uh outstanding item that the assembly had not uh, uh, addressed. I want to touch on something that that Liz mentioned as something that was not a positive out of this session. And that was the the housing deal that Governor Hochul had had made as uh, kind of a centerpiece of of the legislative session that that actually 
did not get passed. And Liz, maybe you can give us some insight on on how that deal kind of fell apart. Where would you like me to start? Well, first of all, what was the governor proposing and, and why didn't it work? So uh, broadly, the governor put forward a very far-reaching housing compact that would have resulted in the in the um, development of 800,000 new homes over a period of a decade. Uh, the state is facing an affordable housing crisis, not only in New York City, but also statewide. The difference uh, outside of the city is that a lot of the housing stock that we do have is aging and not up to par in terms of being habitable, right? And it costs a lot to rehab a old building. So there's that. We also have, you know, a demand um, with the migrant crisis that is growing, a homelessness crisis. So we've got a lot of things that are problematic. So the governor puts forward this housing compact. It, it created targets for localities and it broadly potentially usurped their power and control, uh, creating specific areas like along transportation routes, for example, where you would have to develop and targets that you would have to develop and rezoning that you would have to put in place in order to facilitate development. All of these things rubbed a lot of local communities the wrong way. Let us say that, let us give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they didn't like it because they didn't like the idea of not having their own, being able to control their own destiny and not because they didn't like the type of people that would have come along with the housing if they were forced to build said housing. So it, it failed, um, you know, fairly spectacularly, although I would say there were some like the suburbs were particularly potent in their opposition um, uh, north of New York City in the Hudson Valley and on Long Island. The governor, you know, put forward this bill and it was very far reaching, but she didn't do a lot of legwork prior to the fact in terms of building a coalition necessary to get this over the finish line, um, which was sort of the same rap that some people said was the problem when it came to LaSalle. So, you know, she hadn't done the legwork necessary to build when you put forward something, you know, very unpopular, you really should try and socialize it with people who would, you know, likely be uh, opposing it and maybe do a deal with them. At the end, there was this, at the very end of the session, there was a possibility of resurrecting it. That was in the budget and it failed, right? So then there was a possibility of resurrecting it, but again, the budget was a month late and we didn't have a whole heck of a lot of time to try and do anything. And in the 11th hour, there was this possibility of linking good cause eviction with 421A, with the renewal of the tax break that goes to for-profit developers to encourage them or incentivize them to build affordable housing, which is very controversial and, and housing and tenant advocates don't like it. So it just, it didn't, it didn't get over the finish line at the end of the day. So you said there was at least some movement to try to develop a compromise. You think this is something, this issue is not going to go away. Is this oh, something that no. we're going to have, we might, might be able to regroup and, and, and oh, we try have to, to address again in the crisis in the next isn't session. going away. Right, right. So the need for housing isn't going away. The vulnerable populations who are continuing to languish and having ever more increasing needs isn't going away. So all of that is going to continue. And, you know, we sort of wasted another session with a lack of an agreement. I'm not saying one way or another, we should have done whatever X or Y, but we don't have a deal and we don't have a plan. And there was no um, a final decision with regard to strengthening the good cause eviction. 
uh, rules, uh, protecting the tenants even more. I mean, that's a that's a real dicey one. Well, so many of these are really dicey and there's strong arguments on both sides. You know, on, on the one hand, you know, it's obviously a very, very legitimate uh, interest in trying to prevent landlords from, you know, evicting tenants simply because the landlords are greedy and they just want to make more money. Um, but on the other hand, the extent to which tenants are given more protection uh, also means that there are some tenants who are simply derelict and it becomes extremely difficult for the landlords to evict them and get a tenant that actually pays the bills or, mm-hmm. or doesn't destroy the apartment. So, I mean, there really are uh, strong interests on both sides, as there are with so many of these things. I mean, the bail reform thing is one of those things that, you know, if you listen to the two sides, you, you know, I mean, they they claim it's so clear it ought to be this way or so clear it ought to be that way. But these things are tough. These things are really, really tough. I mean, what's the purpose for bail? And ought there be some provision to allow the judges to exercise greater discretion than they already have? to keep somebody either in pretrial detention uh, or to uh, levy a bail requirement upon them or not? Or is this really um, just allowing the judges to continue what the system already does, which is to disadvantage minorities, right? Which is, you know, the minorities and the poor. So, I mean, these issues are tough. These issues are tough. And I think, I think it's kind of crazy. I mean, Pollyannish to think that, you know, a legislature, even a legislature that's trying to do the right thing can very easily come to agreement on these issues. You know, you mentioned that uh, during the session, we and we've talked about it quite a bit, the the issue of the Court of Appeals, where uh, the first nomination of uh, presiding Judge LaSalle was not successful, but the second one of uh, uh, now Chief Judge Rowan Wilson and now Associate Judge Caitlin Halligan was uh, successful. And so they, the, the, the governor and the legislature, I believe, seem to have put that behind them and are moving forward on uh, for new items. There was, uh, I think it's worth mentioning, there were 11 new Court of Claims judges that just came out uh, at the end of this session. And uh, I know Liz- Including the nation's first ever sitting trans judge, we believe. Right, that was was kind of the news out of those 11, the the first transgender judge that's, uh, uh, or, or, that was named, uh, nominated. So that's uh, certainly uh, important. And there was other legislation that didn't make it through that the New York State Bar Association had advocated for. One uh, was to uh, ensure that town and village justices are lawyers. Uh, and uh, at, currently you can have lay people as town and village justices that I believe passed the Senate. Uh, did not make it through uh, the Senate, but it also garnered the support of the Office of Court Administration, which was new. And that uh, that particular piece of legislation, although it didn't get through the finish line this year, is something that I think we can look for in in future sessions. Uh, I mean, but is that really a lawyer protectionist measure? I mean, do you really not need at all? Lo- not at all. Do you not really at all. need oh, a lawyer on, no, for no, all no. these? All no, these kinds no, of no, issues men, that come before men. these town justices. Men. We know there are abuses, but there are abuses by lawyers who are judges as well. 
You should read the New York Times. I read it. Extensive yeah. investigative. Oh, Glaber by Bill Glaberson. Oh yeah. Yeah, I I hope it it lit your eyebrows on fire because that was really egregious. Well, of course it was. Okay, well, I would argue based on that and just based on that, I mean, look, uh, OCA, like the Office of um, it's Tembeckian's organization, right? The judicial, whatever, what are they called? There's there's policing of lawyers and policing of judges. Yeah. However, at the local level, you know, things get very dicey yeah. very quickly. And, uh, you know, that's where a lot of people, that's where, I don't want to say the majority, but a lot of people intersect with the legal system right. at the local level and they deserve to have quality representation on the bench but wait a minute quality wisdom equity are are not monopolized by lawyers in fact I'm many lawyers i know totally lack those including judges lack okay. those that may you, be the you're case, hanging you gotta current... hang around with a with a better group of people <laughs> but the, let's just be clear the current system is not generating that kind of representation yeah, of course for the public. So right. something should change. The NISPA has said in all their wisdom, perhaps and this law and this bill, perhaps it would be, you know, effective if you had people who actually knew the law who were sitting on the bench. Like kind of yeah. seems logical. But I'm not suggesting that's the only way, but that seems that's the only thing I know of that has been put forth to actually fix the problem. Agree. Agree with you totally. Yeah. Agree with you totally. It would There's be an improvement, but there are other ways we could improve the system. Such yes, as and what? What? For example, giving know? training to those who are oh, going to be course. town justices, some basic I think training. They do that. I'm sure that they do that. Yeah, it really works well, apparently. Well, right. Yeah, that's <laughs> We're going to see if we can get Vin to give one of his lectures. Uh, I think that would be an improvement. There's one other. I, I want to move off the legislature just for a moment. I want to talk about a, 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 a case that's working its way through the New York appellate system and it involves redistricting mm. uh, this is a case that uh you know we talked about a lot last year it had a uh, tremendous impact both statewide and nationally where the uh, court of appeals uh last year around this time uh found that the the uh redistricting map was unconstitutional and they uh had a, a new map drawn uh via the court system and now there's a case pending that says okay that that was that was the map for last year um but they're saying there should be a new map drawn under the constitutional process and the argument on the other side is well no the map that was drawn last year now lasts for 10 years um it went to the 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 trial court the trial court said no it lasts for 10 years and now it's currently at the appellate division third department there's uh they had arguments they haven't had a decision yet but either way uh that's going to go back up to the court of yeah. appeals uh and we'll have the court of appeals a new court of appeals now issuing uh or looking at redistricting again then what do you what are your thoughts on on this case and and how it might end up well, I think it is a different case. Right. Uh, in fact, the majority opinion by former Chief Judge Janet DeFiori made a point of saying, at this juncture, this is what we do. We send it back to this trial judge who then gets this statistician and then they put together 
this and they did thing. right and they did and it had an impact on That's the state right. last year and the election last year and it uh, impacted our congressional seats um and so now they're back saying well do we have to keep this for the next 10 years or can we now go through the process all over again well i think the chief judge was making it clear that what she ordered the remedy she ordered was something that needed to be done because it was an emergency situation it's something that had to be done urgently which is completely the opposite of well now we have time maybe we can do it the right way the other thing is i mean i think it's really unconstitutional to have sent it back to some trial judge and have some trial judge put this darn thing together you know remember right. it was a four to three decision you had three pretty darn strong dissenting opinions and mm -hmm. now one of the dissenters of course is chief judge right and now you and you also have caitlin halligan and we don't know how she's going to vote but i'm not convinced that the other judges who were in the majority are necessarily going to say that what was done in the first case right is what prevails over the next i don't know nine or ten years i'm not i do think that this is a different case right so so all of so it's uh, does that mean you agree with me when you say right open season it's open I think, season you know, right that's like a trope of his he he sort of just says right when he doesn't he means like right like and then continues so he doesn't agree with right me. he's not agreeing with you no it's i know you never trope. do but i think david does every I, once in a while i'm just trying to keep the dialogue going i don't want to he's put my moving i don't want to put my thumb on this <laughs> yeah, thumb no. on my scale right just, i was just, so, just want to be clear he's not agreeing with Vin. I, 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 I'm not disagreeing. I'm not not agreeing. <laughs> You're such a lawyer. You know, we didn't we didn't talk about the lobbying, right? The uh, oh yeah, the, sure. the lobbying. What what happened with that? Although, although I think that what is being proposed may actually be unconstitutional. Wait, I'm whoa whoa back up. What are we talking about? We're talking about extension of this of this lobbying act, which requires the identification of who it is that's paying the lobbyists. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, two years ago, the United States Supreme Court in the Americans for Prosperity decision ruled unconstitutional a California law that required uh, the identification of donors, right? Mm -hmm. And that was to nonprofits, let alone uh, donors to- I remember that. Um, uh, political organizations. I mean, you talk about a First Amendment freedom. Wait, can I go? Can, can is this at all related to? Not probably not at all. But you know, this battle that Congressman Santos is having related to the revelation of the identification of his senators. Well, in New York, it actually has to do with lobbying groups who came out in favor of Hector LaSalle. And of course, the progressives are very upset that there were these lobbying groups supporting Hector LaSalle. And they want to know who the heck was um, was supporting them, financially supporting them. And I guess that the, the proposal is to require that the donors, right, those who are financially supporting these lobbyist groups, whether it's to support a judge who's been nominated or anybody else in government, that the identities uh, be disclosed. But I'm pretty sure the United States Supreme Court would say 
that that's a violation of First Amendment freedom of expression, First mm. Amendment freedom of uh, expressive association. Well, you know, the, the liberals uh, didn't like any kinds of requirement to identify members and contributors when it involved the NAACP um, back in the 50s. And Alabama wanted to know, who are all these members? Who's supporting the NAACP? The Supreme Court, of course, at that time threw it out, said you can't require that. And then the Supreme Court uh, used that case to throw out the California requirement uh, that donators to nonprofits uh, be identified. So if that's what this uh, this lobbying act is going to require, I would, I'm would, i sure there's going to be challenges, and I would imagine the Supreme Court's going to throw it out. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Vin, you, you, thank you for, for bringing something to the table here. Uh, we'll wait, 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 wait. You didn't say right. I said thank you. Yeah, but he you didn't say right. Because you want he's me to not say sure right? where he stands I, on this. I, Liz, <laughs> just, Liz just told me I have a trope. I, I'm, I'm trying to... I get, first, I'm going to go look up what trope is, and then... I'm gonna try to fix it. So you're you're not you're not right. Um, you're you've raised a good issue for all of us to be enlightened by, as you as you always do. Uh, Liz Liz was kind enough to point out that I have a trope. Uh, <laughs> God, you are so sensitive. You people are sensitive. I'm not sensitive in the slightest. You make fun you of me all the time. Too. I'm, I'm not fine with it. Fun of you. I'm just pointing out realities. That's just <laughs> what I do. Well, I I love the reality that both of you bring to this roundtable. This uh, we covered a lot of ground. Yeah. You guys are both great. I appreciate uh, all the insights that you provided, and I look forward to following up on some of these issues with you as as we go forward. So. Vin and Liz, uh, thank you very much for being on Miranda Warnings Roundtable and, and enlightening us. Thank you for having me. I love this. This has been Miranda Warnings, a New York State Bar Association podcast. You have the right to subscribe, rate, and review.